Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to continue in this extremely helpful book today. It's, it's extremely helpful because it answers the questions that, that everyone asks at some point in, in life. If you haven't asked them yet, just live a little longer and you will. Questions like, is, is there real meaning to, to my existence, to this world? Is, questions like, is there, is this all there is? I mean, if this is all there is, it's a pretty miserable existence. Questions like, why do I work so hard only to go one step forward and two steps back? At least that's what it feels like, right? It answers questions. Uh, Ecclesiastes is helpful because it also asks some questions. This is probably what is most helpful about the book. It doesn't just commiserate with you. It asks some questions that you and I spend the majority of our lives trying to avoid. (laughs) Questions like, are you really getting ahead by those extra hours that you put in at work and the extra Saturdays? Does your life really have purpose? Or are you just pretending it does, avoiding the nagging feeling that it's, that it's empty? Ecclesiastes provides wisdom for the why questions. Why does God allow cancer, injustice, even death? And where is He whenever, whenever all of that, all of that happens? Do you live with a workaholic? Ecclesiastes addresses your plight. Have you tasted the world and what you've tasted so far? Does it disappoint you? Drink a cup of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says. How's your marriage? Is it rocky or fulfilling? Ecclesiastes has the answer. And if you'll follow it, it will change your marriage forever. If life baffles you, then Ecclesiastes is the best news around. It's a working man's book. It's a thinking man's book. It explores both labor and also wisdom. And more importantly, it's, it's God's book to provide answers and give wisdom in a world cursed by sin. You see, when we all search for something that, that endures, something that's something that's tangible, and whenever you start looking around in life, you make, a, you make a disappointing discovery. There is very little here that does endure and satisfy and remain, and yet Ecclesiastes shouts what you already, what you already sense. A secular view of life fails miserably. Life in and of itself is unable to supply the key, the key questions, the answers to the key questions of identity and meaning and purpose and enjoyment and value. Life alone, life without God, doesn't answer any of those questions. It, it only leaves you dashed on the rocks of day after day, year after year, searching and never being able to, to find a solution. Ecclesiastes is a commentary on how to live skillfully in a frustrating and, and most of the time, feudal world, a world that's been subjected to, to the curse. The book doesn't just ask and answer questions, it also exposes, it also reveals. The Ecclesiastes is, 
is a diagnostic tool for, for your heart. It will give you an accurate evaluation of, your, of the life you're living, of your, of your spiritual temperature. Ecclesiastes is a blood test for worldly pathogens. I hate getting blood drawn, and sometimes I hate even more the results that that blood draw gives. Well, Ecclesiastes is a blood test for worldly pathogens. If you read it and it depresses you, you may love this world too much. And Solomon will not allow you to die of this poison without forcing you to look at the pathology report. And so that's what he does, chapter after chapter. Ecclesiastes is also a builder's level that, that checks to see if the foundation of your life is is square. If you're frustrated with life, if you're questioning why it's so why it's so crooked, it will show you where you're out of plumb and which trusses need added or or renailed. Ecclesiastes is a is an explorer's guide. It for the young and the the naive who haven't lived long enough, it shows you where the straight gate is located. And it also marks out where all of the the tempting detours are located with their dead ends that, that surround that, that straight gate. But probably what causes us to rejoice the most, Ecclesiastes is a treasure map that shows you where the gold is buried in this life. Surely, it's buried in a Jonah-like field where mustard plants rise up and they look permanent and they begin to provide shade and one day, and then they wither the next. But treasure is buried there in the ground nonetheless. And that treasure will also point you to the one who buried it, the one who offers a never-ending supply in the eternal vault that awaits you in heaven. Well, we introduced ourselves to Ecclesiastes last week, and, and uh, we're going to see Solomon's opening salvo today in, in chapter 1, but but you need to understand some things about Ecclesiastes before we, we dive in. Last week we said you have to understand that Ecclesiastes is written purposely for you to feel the futility of life. If you read it and you feel like it's pulling you under the water and the water is, is dark, you're reading it rightly. That's exactly what it's supposed to do. But not to drown you, but it's to, it's to show you where the diving well is, is located. We also said Ecclesiastes is not to be is not meant to be to be read alone. It it has its place in the other wisdom books, and all four together provide the the gravitational pull that that keeps all four of them in perfect orbit. Proverbs teaches us wise living in all of life. Job shows us what to do when life circumstances don't fit in a nice, neat little proverb. Solomon's Song of Solomon teaches us how to live wisely in marriage with another sinner. And then Ecclesiastes comes along and gives us wisdom for life in a, in a fallen world. And if you read of any of these, any of these four wisdom books, without the others, you're going to get it messed up. Let me illustrate it from Proverbs, as I illustrated last time from Ecclesiastes. If you read Proverbs without the book of Job, you're, you're going to get greatly disappointed. Proverbs says, for instance, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it, right? That's a proverb. That's, that's not necessarily a, uh, a, an irrevocable promise, because there are people who have trained up their child in the way that they should go, and then Job comes along and says, yeah, but my child went, went wayward. What do I do? What do I do then? 
If you read Ecclesiastes without Proverbs, then you're going to find a very depressing view of, of life. Ecclesiastes explains Genesis 3. Genesis 1 is creation, Genesis 3 is the fall, and then the rest of the Bible, all the way up until the end of Revelation, is lived under the curse, under the fall. Ecclesiastes is a commentary on what it looks like to live life in a, in a fallen world. And you can see that clearly when you look through the lens of the introduction and the conclusion. The introduction in verse 2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the conclusion, God will bring everything into just, uh, judgment. He will make right what is wrong. It's wrong. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Everywhere Solomon looks, he finds only the curse. And at the end, God will undo the curse and make right what's wrong. You might think of the way to interpret Ecclesiastes with the beginning and the end like the, like the movie called The National Treasure where the, the, the characters look for a secret message on the Declaration of Independence, which is going to lead them to this immense treasure. And they spend the whole movie going from clue to clue, trying to, to search out the, the hidden message. They finally learn in order to, to see the message on the, on the Declaration of Independence, there are, these, there are these special glasses that they need that actually has two sets of lenses. You seen the movie? They look through the first set of lenses and, and what they, they think they see the full message, but it's wrong. If you read Ecclesiastes through vanity of vanities, you're going to see part of the message, but your conclusion is going to be wrong. Then they pull down the other set of lenses and they look through them both and they find a, a correct message. You should think of Ecclesiastes the same way. The beginning and the end are two sets of lenses that you need to constantly look through to properly interpret Solomon's message. Vanity of vanities, that's what the world is because of the fall, and that brings the frustration and the difficulty and the emptiness that you feel. And you'll find wisdom and joy for that life when you're reminded that God will bring everything into judgment. He'll make right what's wrong, he'll straighten what is crooked, he'll reward what is good and judge what is evil. And if you look through both of those, then you're going to do two things. You'll acknowledge the frustration and you'll see God already has a plan. And you'll see that he's already explained it to you already. And then you'll look beyond this world and you'll find hope in, in what God pro says is good and what he promises. And that's Solomon's pleasing solution. Well, today we're going to look at the introduction and see how Solomon intends to prove this thesis. He puts the thesis up front. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And he's going to prove that. So look, if you would, at verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. It says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Verses 1 and 2 sets the stage for the, for the entire book. The writer is in verse 1, and the motto for the book is in verse 2. It tells us who is writing and what he is going to, to say in verse 2. The writer, the words of the preacher, the words of the Koaleth in Hebrew, he is the son of David, the king of Jerusalem. The... Ecclesiastes 
is the one who speaks to the gathering, hence the word preacher. That's where we get the, the, the name of the book, Ecclesiastes. It's from the Greek version, the Septuagint of the, of the Old Testament. You can hear ekklesia, you can hear the, the Greek word for assembly. It's used in the New Testament. Well, the preacher is the one who speaks to the assembly, the ecclesiastes. And so that's where the name of the book comes from. And we're the gathering of God's people who are here to hear what the preacher has to say. But now Solomon has us gathered and he's got us listening. What is he going to say? Well, what he's going to say is in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He starts the book and he states his thesis, his theory, his proposition. What he's going to spend the rest of the book proving. In the rest of Ecclesiastes, Solomon will explore every area of human life and he finds this conclusion, the conclusion of of vanity. He finds the curse is operative. Whenever he looks in pleasure, the curse is operative in kingdom building, the curse is operative in, in life, in health, in death, everywhere. The word means futility or chasing the wind. And that's the conclusion he draws over and over about life in a Genesis 3 world. The word vanity, I don't think, translates the the Hebrew word very well. Um, It's not that it's wrong, it's just when you have one word in a a language, it may carry certain, uh, a fuller meaning or certain aspects. The Hebrew word havel has the idea of breath or, or vapor. When I got up the... The other morning it was 49 degrees in forest and it made me think about hunting season and fall. And, and yet that's not, that's not cold enough to see my breath. But you've been on those mornings when you see your breath. You breathe out and there's, there's a water vapor that appears and then it vanishes away. That's the idea of this word, vanity. Life is like that, Solomon says. All of life is like that. Life is hard to, to get your hands on. It Just when you think you have a hold of it, it slips through your, your fingers. It disappears as quickly as it comes. Life is like trying to chew cotton candy. The, the moment you think you're getting ready to take a bite, it just kind of melts away. Only life is not very sweet, at least not life under the, the sun. The two English words, I think there's two English words that communicate what what this Hebrew word means, and that's futility and, and frustration. You might say fallen futility, fallen frustration. Futility means there's no coherent plan. It feels like life at times feels like there's no coherent plan, there's no purpose. And everywhere Solomon looks in life, he, he, he feels that futility, whether it's work or education or wisdom or success or pleasure, whatever it is, he finds this futility. There's no answer. To the curse, he finds just the opposite, more futility, more meaninglessness. That's what Genesis 3 says, right? God told Adam, as he pronounced the curse, that from this point forward, you came from the dust, you're going to work in the dust, you're going to labor, you're going to sweat in the dust, and you're going to return to the dust in the end. And that's what brings this sense of futility in life. Solomon knew well that there was a curse. And like you, he felt it. And like you, he looked for a solution. But he says, you're not going to find it in this world. 
and that brings frustration. And so that's the introduction and his thesis. And what comes next in verses 3 through 11 is his, is his uh, executive summary, if you will. Verses 12 through 18, which we're not going to look at today, is his methodology for research. We'll look at that next time. How is he going to prove this? And the rest of the book is, is his actual research, and then chapter 12 is, is his conclusion. So think of what we're going to look at this morning like the executive summary, okay? There's a big, long report, and you don't want to read the whole thing before you draw a conclusion. So there's a summary up front that tells you what you're going to read and kind of lays it out by bullet points. That's what verses 3 through through 11 are in, in Ecclesiastes. Verses 12 through 18 is his methodology, how he's going to go about proving that. The rest of the book is the research, and then chapter 12 is his conclusion. That's how you look at Ecclesiastes as a whole. Let's look at his executive summary that he gives this morning. Evidence, his evidence for his thesis that a secular view of life fails. What do I mean by secular view? Life without God. And that's what people believe today. That's where they're searching for things today, whether it's evolution or agnosticism or atheism or, or in some cases, fake Christianity, where they just take God and slap His name on a, a secular pursuit of, of life. This is actually a poem. It's a foretaste of what you're going to find in the rest of the book. It's, it's not the whole thing. It's like a taster spoon. For, but it's not for Baskin-Robbins ice cream, unfortunately. It's a, it's a bucket of ashes of the world. And he goes over areas that he's going to cover. He's going to justify his conclusion, prove his thesis here in these verses. Have you ever watched Hee Haw? You know the four guys with the jugs that are sitting there with the Eeyore look on their face? You remember them singing the song of Ecclesiastes? Gloom, despair, agony on me, deep, dark depression, right? Excessive misery. Dr. Bill Barrick says chapter 1 reads like the hee-haw song. And in chapter 1, Solomon gives six proofs or six evidences that life under the sun is filled with futility. Six evidences of futility in a sin-cursed life. He says life is frustratingly temporary in verses 4 through, through 7. Life is futilely weary in verse 8. It's frustratingly uncertain. It's futilely dissatisfying. It's frustratingly repetitious. And it's futilely forgetful. Now, I think I warned you last time, but the air is quite stale in chapter 1 in many places in Ecclesiastes. So, so you have to keep the, the horizon in view, the chapter 12, or you're, you're going to falter. And he shocks us with this question in verse 3 that, that he uses to set up these, these evidences. Look at this question that we don't like to, to ask. Verse 3, what advantage does man have in all his work or his toil which he does under the sun? What, what profit? It's a business term. What profit? What, what's the return on the investment? 
the human beings have in all of their work which they do under the sun? It's a rhetorical question, and he asks it before he goes over these six evidences. Solomon already knows the answer. He's asking it to make a point. He's asking it to make you think. And then he sets the context and proves that Solomon is talking about the cursed world, not God's blessings. Because notice he says life under the sun. You're going to hear that repeated over and over, under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. What does he mean by that? In a Genesis 3 world, in a cursed world. That's what under the sun means. What is the return on your investment for all of the labor and the toil and the effort that you put forth in a sin-cursed world under, under the sun? He asks you a very pointed question. Why do you do what you do? And where will all that effort get you in the end, really? You're expending a lot of energy every single day of your life. But, but what's the profit for your energy? What's the, what's the return? It's a question that we usually don't like to ask ourselves because if we, if we give an honest answer, the, it's not very motivating. <laughs> Does all the extra work I do, all the attempts to get ahead, all the extra effort, all the sweat and the sacrifice really get me ahead in the end? When the end is the grave, Solomon says. And the answer is not really. There's not a lot of return on your investment. Whenever you get to the grave, you're not going to care about winning employee of the month. You're not going to care about your MDiv, your DMIN, your PhD, your JD, or whatever else it is. All of the effort and the money that you use to, to get there, if, if, if you live for this life and this life only, Solomon says the return on your investment is, is not that much. The word Solomon used for work, uses for work is a specific word, it's not a word used for a noble cause like caring for your family or sacrificing. It's toil. It's, it's that which is grievous. It's unfulfilling. It's the kind of work the Israelites did in Egypt. More bricks, less straw. It's often used in the Old Testament with, with words like sorrow and misery. Something that doesn't produce something much in the end. It's, it's work under the curse. Joel James says it's the kind of work that gives you blisters on your hands and a sore back and nothing much to show after you're done. And life feels that way, doesn't it? You ever, how many of you enjoy uh, pulling weeds in, in your weed bed? Or ladies enjoy um, cleaning your, your house? Well, you may enjoy the labor in and of itself, but what happens next week? There are weeds there again, and the dirt returns, right? The pile of laundry that you make go away, magically there's a new pile of dirty laundry that appeals, appears. And it's the same way over and over and over. And you find yourself thinking, I just did all of this laundry yesterday and I worked really, really hard to get it all done and I even folded it this time. I even put the socks in everybody's drawer. And here is another pile. What, extra, what did your extra effort actually get you? Solomon asks. You say, really? I mean, that's, that's life? You felt it. 
I think the way the New Testament restates Solomon's question here will help you really understand what he means. The New New Testament, Jesus, in fact, restates what Solomon says here. See if this sounds familiar to you. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What advantage does a man have with all of the toil in which he does trying to get ahead? The idea is that you spend your life working and laboring, and in the end, what, what do you have to show for it if you live it without God? Solomon says there's no profit at all, and then he, he begins to, to prove it. And the first evidence that he gives is life is futilely temporary. This is what feels that way in verse 3, the feeling that, you, that you've had. He says life is futilely temporary. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, hasting to its place and rising again. The wind blowing toward the south, turning toward the north. The wind continues swirling along and on its circular course. The wind returns. The The rivers flow into the seas, yet the sea is not full. To the place where the rivers flow, there they flow Again, man is here today and gone tomorrow. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You actually just look at at life, life under the sun in and of itself. What do you see? You see a generation coming and and a generation going. Philip Ryken said, when people think about the next generation, we usually think about progress. I thought about the song that I I remember hearing. I don't remember. I think it was a bunch of Hollywood yahoos that sang it. Um, uh, The children are our future. We are the world, right? We are the world. We are the people. The children are our future. We hope our children go farther than, than we do. And Solomon says, you know how far your children will go? Into the grave. That's how far they're going to go. One generation goes off the scene. Notice, it doesn't say one generation comes and one generation goes. One, a generation goes and a generation comes. One goes, meaning they die. Another one comes and does the same thing. And his point is man is temporary. Life here, if this is all there is, it's, it's frustrating. Because it's temporary. And then he contrasts that to something that seems more permanent. Look at what he says in verse uh, 5. Yeah, the end of verse 4. The earth remains forever. Feels like people come and go, but it feels like the planet, the planet remains. And people bought into that, right? Climate change madness, and you've got to save the whales, and you need to do everything else to protect the planet because the planet is permanent, and human beings are, are just, they come and they go. That's, that's where a, a, a view without God will, will lead you. It, it feels like the planet is permanent, and it does feel like human beings come and, and go. And so if you only look through the, the lens of, of Ecclesiastes 1, that's the conclusion that you're going to draw, just the natural world. The sun rises and the sun sets. It's hastening to its place. It rises again. The Hebrew has the picture of the sun running. Running, running, running through the, 
through the sky. And it, it, it goes down and then it, it's, it's the idea of being breathless. It's panting to get up the other side to come up, a, come up again. Can you hear the futility? The sun runs across the sky, goes down behind the earth and runs back up again and just does it over and over and over uh, again. Everything goes in a cycle. Everything is cyclical. Birth and death, sunrises, sunsets. All the all of the verbs in the Hebrew are participles, meaning they're ongoing. They're 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 never ending. And as the earth continues on and on, man is temporary. Wave after wave of generation washes upon the earth to go back into the sea again. And Solomon says life is is short, and it feels that way. If this life is your only hope, I really feel sorry for you. I really do. Because your life is like a vapor. You ever felt that? Blink and it's gone by. You know that face app that every that all everybody was crazy about? You know, you know it, only young people think that's fun. You know the app that shows you what you look like when you're aging? I mean, old people just look in the mirror, right? I mean, that's what we don't need a face app. We just look in the mirror. And when you look in the mirror, you think, where did the time go? Where did that wrinkle come from? Where does that gray hair? My wife told me last week my gray suit brought out my gray hair. I said, yeah. And if I don't comb it the right way, there's no hair that's uh, up there too. Yeah. You know why you feel that way? You know why you feel the futility of a temporary life? Because you're a Genesis 1 creature living in a Genesis 3 world. You're a Genesis 1 creature. You were created, you were not created to die. And you're being subjected to a Genesis 3 curse. You were created to live forever, but you don't. And you sense that's not the way it's supposed to be, and that creates frustration. I mean, don't you feel that whenever you go to a funeral? This is not right. It's grieving. And that's the cry of the human heart. I'm temporary. If only there was someone that could grant us life forever. (laughs) His name is Jesus Christ. He can give you life forever. But with or without Him, Solomon says life here is wearying. It's futilely Weary. Look, if you would, at verse 8, after he goes about the sun and the, the rivers and the sea. They flow and they're never full. It's the cycle. Verse 8, all things are wearisome. Word labor that's there. I think this is the, really what the Hebrew is, is saying. All things are weary. All things are wearisome. After talking about the sun and the wind and the rivers and all the motion never making any progress, Solomon says, it wears you out. It doesn't wear out the earth, but it wears you out whenever you're going day in and day out, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and sometimes Saturday, sometimes Sunday. Life is short, it's like a breath, and my time here is temporary. You feel it's short, but at the same time, there's something about it that feels too long at times, doesn't it? Life is monotonous. It's weary. 
Like the rivers that flow and flow, we go round and round without end, and that's wearisome. You long for more life. Oh, if I, if I just had a few more hours in the day, then I would be able to get done my to-do list. If I, if I just had a few more years in life, then I would be able to actually do what I hoped to do whenever I was young. But at the same time, you, you long for less life. Oh, when will this day be over? I can't wait for bedtime. When will Friday come? When will this season of life end? See, I told you that Solomon was following you around. He knows exactly what you're thinking, doesn't he? Joel James again said, The new job that you love eventually becomes routine and then drudgery. And then it becomes weary going there. The new song that you can't wait to download, that you listen to over and over, it gets so old that you hate it whenever it comes on the radio. Isn't that experience in life? And in this life, there's also many things that you can't figure out. Life is frustratingly uncertain. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to, to tell it. As the idea, he, he can't say anything about it. It's, it's, it's inexplicable. There are certain things about this life that you will not be able to figure out. There are things that you can't explain. And apart from God, life doesn't make any sense at all. And sometimes even with God, there are things that you can't explain. The good news is that, that God will make all things beautiful in His time, Solomon will tell us later. But you live a while and there's a feeling of frustration and futility that comes from uncertainties, things that you can't figure out. You look around and you see pain and see suffering and you say, what, what is the purpose of this? What is God doing or what is God not doing? <laughs> What's the purpose of, of a child suffering because their parents squander their money on, on drugs or because they refuse to, to work? Why would God allow that? What is the purpose in that? It's the question that you ask, and the answer that you come to while you're living here in your limited understanding is, I don't know. I know the parents are responsible. Man's responsible for his sin, and will be held accountable by God for that. I know that God could have intervened, but He didn't, and sometimes He does. I know that God promises to make all things beautiful in His time. I know that one day it will make sense. But I don't know in this specific instance that I'm wrestling with right now the why. Why? And that's frustrating to us. Don't blame him. That's part of the curse. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man's sin, death, I the curse, entered into the world, and the curse passed to all men because of all sin. Solomon says also, don't look for the answer anywhere other than him because you won't find it. But even when you look to him, he may not give you the answer. There may not be an answer here. You may not have the ability to understand. It may be inexplicable. And you have to be all right with that. And it's frustrating. He'll make it plain one day. But Solomon says, not while a curse, not while a curse lies over the land. Life is also futilely dissatisfying. Look at verse 8. 
All things are wearisome, man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with, with hearing. Besides the reality of frustration and a sense of futility, you're also keenly aware that even in the moments of enjoyment or pleasure, they never fully satisfy. The greatest moments of your life always leave you wanting for something more. Whenever the mountains or the sunsets or something that that you've not seen before takes your breath away, it's not long before you find a desire for something more. And there's a question that comes into your heart that says, is there something more? Is that it? It doesn't bring lasting contentment. This earth, this world, the pleasures of it are good There are certain things that God has given us to enjoy, but they do not bring permanent or lasting contentment. There's a restlessness that is innate innate in human beings. You're never completely satisfied, are you? One commentator in Ecclesiastes said, Mick Jagger And the Rolling Stones got one thing right. I can't get no satisfaction in life. It's the only thing that they got right, by the way. You have a good meal and it's so good, but then you want dessert. (laughs) You enjoy a good day doing whatever you love to do, but then once you get it, this unfulfilled feeling that it just wasn't enough comes over you. You search and you search, but... You can never find it, and you sense that there must be a beauty that ends all beauty, but you can never find that beauty in this life. And it's not age-specific, is it? When the, the kids are growing up, they think some of their greatest deprivations are not being allowed to do things that adults do. I can't wait to grow up because when I do, I can drink Diet Pepsi as late as I want to and no one can stop me. And then whenever you're able to drink Diet Pepsi as late as you want to, you don't care anymore. (laughs) You're looking for something else to look forward to. You're single. I can't wait to get married. Then I'll be satisfied. And once you're married, you can't wait to get a job. Then you'll be satisfied. Did the job satisfy? Did the marriage fully satisfy? There are good things about it. Once I have a job, I can't wait to have kids. Then I'll be fulfilled. And and then you get the kids. And what are you saying? I can't wait till they're grown up so me and the missus will be alone again. (laughs) Then it's just the two of you. And you say, I'm so alone. I wish the kids would come back over. Let's invite them over. It's not resource-specific either. Not age-specific. It's not resource-specific. Both the rich and the poor long for what they do not have. Dissatisfaction is an infection of the human heart. comes no matter what fills your hands in this life. Have little, you want more. Have more, you want less, or you want more. You want more. You know why? Because the man is never fully satisfied in this life. You feel there has to be more to this life than there is, and that's frustrating. There's no lasting pleasure, and you were created for that. You were created for 
for something eternal, something that fully satisfies, someone that brings complete contentment. Right now, you are cursed, and you live in a Genesis 3 world, and when you put those two things together, you were made to be completely and fully satisfied, and yet you are in a world that doesn't satisfy. That brings frustration. And it repeats over and over and over. Life is frustratingly repetitious. This is Solomon's fifth proof. If you would at verse 9. The thing which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. See, there is nothing new under the sun. The verse that you probably know. Is there anyone which one might say, is there anything which one might say, see... This is new. And if you say that already, it has exist, it's existed for ages which were before us. Here's a familiar verse with a futile reality. There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon says some people think that they're making great progress, developing new inventions or discovering something that, that in their minds is a real advancement in knowledge and they think that brings them meaning, and he says it's, it's nothing new. You've only discovered what God already created. <laughs> and the basic activities and pursuits of life never change. There are changes. They're just fundamentally not something that's new. The guy who invented the cell phone felt the same way that the guy as the guy did who discovered smoke signals. There will be something that comes along after wireless communication, but it's still just communication. The Internet connects people, but people have been trying to connect for a long time. There may be advances in the sense of the way in which we communicate, but it's not really, it's not really new and it's not going to ultimately satisfy and even if you do invent the Internet like Al Gore or something else, people will forget you. Look at verse 11. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be no remembrance among those who will come later. Remember the generation that goes and the one that comes? They're not going to remember you, Solomon says. You hope to be famous one day? I have sad news for you. You will not be famous. <laughs> Solomon says, even if you are, when you're dead, no one will remember what you did. The reality of life is, even if you're, even if you're a footnote in history, will that really bring lasting satisfaction? You go to the library, there's book after book in the history section with page and pages written about people people's entire lives and nobody nobody reads them. And if someone does read your autobiography, they won't remember any real details about you, which is what you want. I mean, the reason that you want to be successful in inventing something or doing something that someone remembers is because you want to be remembered. You don't want the invention. You don't really care about the invention. You want, you want to be remembered. And they don't remember anything about you. Everyone knows the name John D. Rockefeller. Rockefeller Center. But what do you really know about... John D. Rockefeller as a person. You know his name. 
but you can't really tell me any, what he was like, maybe what he was known for, or his personality, maybe even an anecdote of his life. He was one of the most wealthy and powerful men alive at the U.S. at one point, and we didn't remember his middle name, John D. Rockefeller. What was his middle name? David? Yeah, maybe. You're going to be worse, Solomon says. If your great-great-grandchildren, they may read your name in a genealogy, but it will be an empty symbol with no real person behind it. You say, well, I hope to do something great like cure cancer. I hope you do that. Then I'll be remembered, you say. And Solomon says it would be wonderful if you do that, but even if you do, in the end, the people that you cure are going to die anyway. You die, the people you cure, it would be helped. They'll die, maybe just not of cancer. What real lasting value will it bring if this is all there is? Is what Solomon is saying. You say, wow, you just busted my bubble. That's, that's, that seems depressing. Remember, I told you that's what Solomon wants you to feel. When you look at life under the sun alone, when you do... You and your efforts are fleeting, they're wearisome, they're uncertain, they're dissatisfying, they're monotonous, they're, they're forgotten. And you say, what's the point? What's the point of feeling that? Because when you feel that heaviness, that this life is that empty, that it is cursed, the purpose is to devastate you. And to wake you up, to show you that, that you love something that's deformed something that's crooked. And when you get there, then you're in the place to find real hope. Because purpose now and the possibility of that in the future is, 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 found, in a purpose, is found in a person. You see, if you add Christ to any of those six frustrations and futilities, everything changes even in a cursed world. You'll still feel a measure of frustration, and this world will fight against you, but you'll find joy and real lasting hope. If you add Christ to the temporary nature of life, it's a vapor, you'll embrace the saying of the Apostle Paul, to live as Christ and to die as vain. It's gain. If you add it to life is wearisome, you'll recognize life is wearisome and you'll enjoy the good gifts that God gives you, but not the counterfeit ones. And you'll look forward to, to the real rest that you're going to get in God. You realize life is uncertain. You add Christ, you'll realize that life is uncertain, but, but also that your life and everything else that lies into the hands of a sovereign one who controls it all, and you'll trust Him and you'll rest in Him even if you can't explain it. If you had Christ, you, you'll embrace this life is dissatisfying and you'll find real and lasting joy in the person of God, not in the empty ashes of the world. And you'll see all the predictability, the round and round, over and over, as evidence as there is one who makes things new every morning. There may not be anything new under the sun, but the one who rules over the Son promises something new. There's a new covenant. There's a new heart. He can make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then you'll not care about being forgotten. You'll only long for the one name to be known, the name that is above every name, the name that 
every knee will bow to and every tongue will, to, will confess. And then you'll live your life under the sun trying to make His name known. Philip Ryken said, when we take the vanity of vanities into the holies of holies, everything changes. Isn't that good? And the end that Solomon brings us to is in chapter 12, verse 14. Confirms the Genesis 3 lens, but also gives you the plan. Do you remember it? God will bring every act, whether good or evil, into judgment. And judgment means this world is wrong. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and God will make it right. And until He does, He offers you something much greater than this world. He offers you the Lord Jesus Christ and His forgiveness, full and free. Would you bow your heads?